Good morning again, and welcome to our church. If you are with us, you probably know already that we are in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, where Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And this is our fourth week in this incredible text. We saw that peacemaking, being a peacemaker, begins with having peace with God. In order to be a a peacemaker, we must first have the peace that we offer to others ourselves. And Jesus himself is our peace. He made peace through the blood of his cross. We were at enmity with God because of our wicked hearts. And we were under the wrath of God because of our sins. And on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, freeing us from the consequences of our sins, from the wrath of God. And through that salvation, our wicked hearts are are then transformed. And therefore, we have peace with God. And so a peacemaker is first and foremost someone who has this peace, and now they bring this message of peace with God to others. Our task is to proclaim the gospel of peace to the world. And if you are a Christian, then you are a peacemaker in this sense. You are one who is called to bring the message of peace with God to the world. But our Peace with God is also meant to make a difference in our lives on what we've been calling the horizontal level with one another. We're to be at peace with one another. And last week we looked at the importance of peace. We saw that Jesus has made peace and unity between believers. And, and we've been united in the body of Christ, in the church, through our salvation. And so as brothers and sisters in Christ, we share a common salvation. We share the same Father. We share the same Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been brought into this salvation through the same Holy Spirit. Our job then is not to create unity by various worldly means. Our job is to preserve the unity of the Spirit that we have. We're to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Many well-meaning people think that they need to do something to create peace in the body, that they need to try to manufacture some unity, that they need to try to make unity by getting a bunch of professing Christians together at some kind of a function or some kind of an event, but that is not Christian unity. Usually at, at such an event like that, people... These kind of events try to appeal to the largest group of people possible, and to do that, they minimize the truth factor. But true Christian unity is based on truth. Unity is based on shared convictions that we have. And so the more that we are transformed to be like Jesus Christ, the more unified that we will be. And what transforms us into the image of Christ? Well, Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, be transformed by the renewing or the renewal of your minds. And so when God's truth, when the truth of God's word renews our minds in every area of our life, then our unity will deepen. 
And if that is true of us, then disagreements about truth will be handled with humility and grace and love, and we will seek to teach and to be taught the truth so that we can all be of one mind. And so unity is important, and it's, it's founded on or in the truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul says to the Corinthians, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a strong appeal there. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Unity is important. We saw that last week. In fact, in Matthew 5, 22, we see, and, and I can't remember if we even looked at this last week, but unity is so important that it's actually an issue of worship. Matthew 5, 22, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the, the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus here is warning about the danger of anger. Anger is really murder of the heart. He said in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. And then verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Anger is murder of the heart, and anger will be judged. And Jesus is teaching his disciples that those who not only, that we are those who not only refrain from committing murder, but we are also those who repent of anger in our hearts. And so in verse 23, if we're offering a gift at the altar, if we are there in the midst of worship, this is an Old Testament context here, if we're at the altar in the midst of worship and we're about to sacrifice our lamb and all have have dinner together around that lamb in this context of temple worship and and as you're about to do that you realize that you're you're angry with your brother or or even that your brother has something against you you know you you at this point you would have made a journey to Jerusalem to be at the temple and you're just about to make this offering at the temple but suddenly you realize that there's something between you and another brother, what are you supposed to do? Well, it's so important that we are at peace with one another that the Lord says to leave your gift there at the altar and go first, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And so we see how important it is that we are at peace, that there is harmony and goodwill between us. This is a, a priority, and it's a priority even above an act of worship. And the reason for that is because being at peace with one another is an act of worship. If we aren't seeing our relationships as worship, then whatever other so-called worship we are doing, it's not pleasing to God. And so I want to take our time together this morning to show you how you can be a peacemaker with other believers. 
So we saw last time the importance of peacemaking. This time, I want to try to show you how we can be a peacemaker. And there's so much that we could say about this. But, and we're just going to really cover some, some really basic things here. But what should you do if your brother or your sister has something against you? How do you go and first be reconciled to your brother? And I called this, and we started this last time, three critical actions so that you can be an instrument of peace wherever you are. Three critical actions. And I framed these as, as things that were to obey, uh, as commandments. And so last week we looked at, number one, that we are to believe the importance of peacemaking. That we're to believe the importance of peacemaking. The second one is going to be something that we're not to do here. And sometimes knowing what not to do can be as helpful as knowing what we actually should do. And so this is what not to do if you want to be a peacemaker. And I called this number two then, avoid the hindrances of peacemaking. Avoid the hindrances of peacemaking. So before we get into what to do and what to remember, we need to just remember the definition of conflict that we've been looking at and using. Conflict, again, is, a, quote, a difference of opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. And based on that definition, not all conflict is sinful in and of itself. Sin, is, sin comes if the opinions or purposes or goals or desires are themselves sinful. Sometimes we have sinful desires. Those are sinful in and of themselves. Or sin comes in conflict when we respond sinfully to those differences of opinions, purposes, goals. Okay, so we can, we can have conflict. We can disagree. If you want to go to Wendy's and I want to go to A&W, that's a conflict. It's no big deal. It's not a sinful conflict. But it becomes sinful when we respond sinfully and uh, I slam on the brakes and drive us to Wendy's or whatever, wherever I said I wanted to go. So uh, let's not think too much about lunch yet. We're just getting going here. So... Um, sin comes again if the, the, the opinions, purposes, or goals are themselves sinful or when we respond sinfully. And there's so many ways that we can make conflict worse. There's so many things that we should avoid in conflict. And all of these things that, that you know, and really all kinds of things need to be avoided. But I, I, I came up with four hindrances to peacemaking that, that you should avoid and that I should avoid. And this is not a comprehensive list by any means, but these are four things that we need to avoid if we're going to be peacemakers in one another's lives. And the first one, then, is we need to avoid idolatry. Not idolatry, idolatry. And we spoke about that a little bit last time. Idolatry is when something other than God captures our hearts, our affections, our loves. Uh, idolatry is allowing someone or something besides God to steal our love, to control our time, to have our affection, to direct our resources, to run our thoughts, or to take our worship. When, when something other than God captures our heart, we are committing idolatry. And God should have all of these things. He should have our thoughts and our worship and our resources and our affection and our, our love and our time. Uh, God should have 
our hearts. And idolatry is when God doesn't have our hearts. And this happens in our lives. And idolatry wreaks havoc in our lives because idolatry raises our desires and makes them into little gods. Listen to what Martin Luther said about this. He said, when, when he says God in this quote here, he's using God with a little g. So he says, he says this, quote, to whatever we look for, for any good thing, and for refuge in every need, that is what is meant by God. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in him from the heart. And then he says, to whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that, I say, is really your God. That is really your God. Whatever you give your heart to and entrust your being to, that is your God. And we saw this a little bit last week in James chapter 4, where James asks, what causes quarrels among you? And then he says, is it not your passions and your desires? And so conflict escalates when we elevate our desires and we look to those things for good instead of looking to God. For example, this week uh, I was working and uh, trying to write a sermon on peacemaking and trying to going to teach you guys how to make some nice peace with everyone. And uh, I, w- I was feeling a little bit of pressure at that time on Friday morning, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, I, I want some inner in uninterrupted time. And guess what happens? The kids come in one after the other. And for various reasons, one kid after another comes in. Now, I can worship God with how I respond to them by being gracious and loving in that moment, or I can worship my desire and I can get all upset and anxious and frustrated. And I got to admit, I, I blew it at one point this week as I was writing this exact part of the sermon. And I, I wasn't gracious and, and loving. I was frustrated and upset and I wanted my uninterrupted time and I wanted it now. You know, there's nothing like trying to write a sermon on peacemaking when you're just absolutely failing to apply it. But we all need to grow in this area, don't we? At any time in our lives, a, a desire can become a demand, and that's showing us that it's an idol in our lives. And so all of us need to diligently seek and root out the idols in our lives. And the way that we find them And there's going to be just so much information in this sermon, and you might have to come back and listen to some of these, but the way that that we find idols in our lives is by asking ourselves x-ray questions like these ones here. Where am I feeling pressure right now? Pressure shows us what is an idol in our lives. What am I thinking about? We need to watch our thoughts because what we think about in our minds and in our hearts continually, that, that shows what, what's really in our hearts. We need to watch our thoughts or be thinking about what we're thinking about. Another question to find idols in your heart is to ask this, where do I go to for pleasure? Or where do I go to for refuge when I'm down? Where do I go when I'm feeling discouraged? And if it's not to God, if it's something else, that's an idol in our lives. Another one is what do I fear or what am I afraid of? What am I, what are you afraid of right now? Or another place to look is to ask where is chaos in your life? 
Where is the havoc in your life? Where is the, the, the craziness happening in your life? That is probably caused somehow or other by an idol. Or you could answer this question, fill in the blank. How would you answer, if only blank, I would be happy, content, or secure? What is your if only? If, if only I had this thing, then I would be happy, satisfied. That's showing you an idol in your lives. And so those questions reveal the idols of our hearts. If we had no idols, we would have no sinful conflict. We would just worship God in every and in, in each and every situation. We would honor Him. But unfortunately, even in our redeemed state as born again brothers and sisters in Christ, we struggle with inordinate desires. John Calvin likened our hearts to boiling pots that constantly bubble forth idols of various kinds. Now, the good news is, is that we can grow and we can overcome our sin. And so we don't have to continually have the same idols. We can put those things off by God's grace and we can be transformed into the image of Christ who has no idols, but only worships and loves God every moment. But to be a peacemaker, we must fight idolatry, not only in our own lives, but then we must come and we must fight idolatry in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must help them to put off their idols so that they can love and enjoy God more fully. So we need to, A, put off idols. Number uh, two, or B, avoid attempts to avoid conflict. This is a, a hindrance that needs to be avoided. We need to avoid attempts to avoid conflict. If we really love others and we want to help them enjoy God, then we need to help them put off their sin. We, we know that as, as believers in Christ, we know that there is no greater good for our brothers and sisters in Christ than for them to enjoy God. And so when we see others in sin or we, when we see idols in their lives, we want to help them. And because we value one another and understand the importance of peace, we work through our differences with others. When there's a, a, a conflict with another person, we, we work through it. We don't just ignore it. <clears throat> but naturally speaking, at least for most of us, naturally we tend either to two sinful extremes when it comes to conflict. And the one is to avoid it, and the other one is to try to control it or tr to try to take control. Now, we cannot avoid conflict. We need to deal with it biblically. And, and let me just give you a couple of sinful ways to try to avoid conflict that we need to avoid. The one is denial. Pretending like there is no conflict. Pretending like everything is okay. Now, we can practice denial simply by not doing what needs to be done. If there's a conflict between you and someone else and you don't go to them, you don't do anything about it, you don't do anything to resolve the conflict, that is sin. Another way to avoid conflict that we must avoid is to try to run from conflict. Now, we, and maybe some of you can identify with this, we can run from conflict lots of ways. We can literally run away. We can run from conflict by locking ourselves in a room. We can 
and, and refusing to talk about the issues. We can run from conflict by quitting a job, by filing for divorce, by changing churches. Those are ways that people try to run from conflict and avoid conflict. These are called flight responses. And denying conflict or fleeing conflict never solves the conflict. Most times it just makes the matter worse. Now sometimes we do need just a a few minutes or more to think or to calm down or, or something else, but we should never try to escape conflict. We should always actually try to deal with it. So we call these uh, escape responses or peace faker. Don't be a peace faker. We're called to be peace makers. And at the most extreme level, suicide is an attempt to escape conflict. Sometimes just conflict within. But escape or trying to escape conflict is never the right response to conflict. Now, another thing that we need to avoid see is to avoid attempts to control conflict. We need to avoid attempts to control conflict. Another way to respond sinfully to conflict is to try to get your way by force. And this is a response that puts your desires above the other person and above God. The same is true for escape responses. When I try to escape from conflict, I'm putting my own comfort above the relationship and above God's commands. When I try to control conflict, I'm putting my desire above God and above the other relationship. These are called attack responses or war maker responses. And this is kind of the other extreme that many of us go to. The first attack response is assault, and it could be physical assault or verbal assault. Verbal attacks would be things like gossip, slander, saying, you fool, or uh, other names, calling names, manipulation. These are, these are ways to kind of control other people to get our desires. Physical assault would be any kind of physical attack, hitting, or, you know, kids do this, biting and kicking and throwing things. That's, that's kind of a, a child's sinful way to control their situation. Another attack response would be litigation, you know, trying to sue somebody to get what you want. Listen to this quote from the Peacemaker Ministries, a very helpful book by Ken Sandy called The Peacemaker And uh, some of, really a lot of what I'm talking about today comes from that book. But here's his quote. He says, quote, Although some conflicts may legitimately be taken before a civil judge, then he says, see Acts 24, 1 to 26, 32, and Romans 13, 1 to 5, he says, lawsuits usually damage relationships, diminish our Christian witness, and often fail to achieve complete justice. This is why Christians are commanded to make every effort to settle their differences within the church rather than in the civil courts. And he says, see 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 20, chapter 5, 25, which we already looked at. If you have your gift, go and make things right. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is just, he just can't believe that the Corinthians are suing one another. One of my professors summed up that passage this way. He said, why would the righteous go before the unrighteous and their courts in order to achieve righteousness? It just doesn't make any sense. And in court, if you sue somebody, you're rarely going to get justice. 
And anything you do is likely going to cost way too much. And, and what I mean by that is you're going to have to pay lawyers. It's going to take you time off of work. There's going to be stress. Litigation is not the answer. Trying to get your way by suing another person is really not the answer for the majority of conflicts. Now, at the most extreme end of assault or, or war maker responses, murder would be the most extreme. And that the idea is, I'm going to kill the competition. And so that's something that we need to avoid. All kinds of assault, all kinds of trying to control. Now, fourthly, we need to avoid as well, I'm going to call this blaming others. Avoid attempts to blame others. We need to take responsibility for our own actions. Now, it it takes two people to have a conflict. But we tend to be more aware of what the other person is doing to contribute to the conflict than we are aware of our part. Now, nobody can make you sin. You sin because of what's in your heart. Other people can create situations where the sin that is in your heart comes out but nobody makes you sin. And so when there's a conflict, there's always something that we can own in the conflict. There's always something that we can confess and repent of. There's always something for us to learn. There's always room for us to grow to be more like Christ. And we can only really help another person see their contribution to the conflict if you have acknowledged and confessed and repented of your own sin. Now, whenever I do conflict resolution, maybe let's say it's counseling or let's say it's marriage counseling, you know, the the husband usually thinks it's 90% the wife's fault and the wife thinks it's 90% the husband's fault. Now, I don't know what the deal is. Maybe people think that pastors just ain't too good at math or something, but it just, that something doesn't quite add up. And even Pastor Mike knows that 90% and 90%, there's There's too much blame going on. But if each person works hard on seeing even just their own 10% of the contribution to a conflict, then they, they, they work and they, and they work to grow and change themselves. What a difference it makes. What a difference. It makes a, it's amazing to see the difference. And so to be a peace fit maker, we need to avoid blaming others. And take responsibility for our own sin or or our own contribution to the conflict. And so these are four hindrances to avoid. Avoid idolatry. Avoid attempts to control, uh, to avoid conflict. Avoid attempts to control conflict. And avoid attempts to blame others. Now these could all be summed up like this. Just simply avoid sin. You want to be a good peacemaker? Just avoid Sin, or because all of these things are really defects in true Christian character. If we loved God supremely and loved others uh, above ourselves and we preferred them above ourselves, we would avoid all of these hindrances to peacemaking. And so, what do we do then? Well, God has actually given us direction in His Word, and He has showed us how to relate to one another, and how to deal with conflict. So we've looked at what not to do. Now, number three, we need to obey the guidance of peacemaking. Obey the guidance of peacemaking. Obey God's word and what he tells us to do in the midst of conflict. 
Now, in this section, I'm going to give you some peacemaking principles, and then I'm going to give you some peacemaking practices. And again, this, most of this comes from Ken Sandy's book called The Peacemaker, a really helpful book and, and ministry. But, you know, honestly, I could do maybe, we could probably do three or four messages on this, and, and maybe someday we'll come back to some of this, but I don't know how you guys are feeling, but I am ready to move on from Matthew 5, 9 to another verse. And so we're going we're gonna to try to go through this fairly quickly here. But there's, there's much more that could be said is all I want to say here. There's, there's much more that could be said on this. And one day we'll come back to these things. But first of all, let me give you some peacemaking principles. And there's actually four of them. And they, that we call these, or Ken Sandy called these, the four G's. Of peacemaking. And the first one is that in a conflict, we need to glorify God. We need to glorify God. Everything about our lives should be directed towards glorifying God. In conflict, what this means is that, is that I'm going to see ra- conflict radically different than the world sees conflict. The, the world, when, when somebody has a difference of opinion or purpose that's frustrating their goal or, or desire, the world says, you got to fight for your rights. The, the world says, you need to get what you want because that's the only way that you can be happy. But that is not true as a Christian. As Christians, we live for a higher purpose. Our joy does not come from our circumstances or from getting what we want when we want it. At least it should not come from that. God is our joy. Our joy is in Him. And conflict then is a perfect opportunity to glorify God. Now you ask, how can that be? How can conflict be an opportunity to glorify God? Well, it's because when there's a conflict, it means that what I want is blocked. But now I can show, because what I want is blocked, I can show how much greater God is than that thing that I want. You know, I wanted, and, and this might be a typical example for some of you men, you want to come home from work and you want to have, after a hard day of work, you want the kids obediently waiting for you and you want uh, them to be excited to see you and you want the house to be clean and dinner to be ready. You want your wife looking good, totally at peace, right? Just totally calm and at peace. And have had, she's had a wonderful day and is excited to welcome you home. And, and you wanted to come home and put your feet up and enjoy a glass of, of lemonade and, and relax. And maybe you can relate to that. And, and, and you kind of get the idea. Now, now, what happens if you come home and the kids are fighting and dinner is burnt and your wife is frazzled and the toilet is plugged and we're all out of lemonade. What are you going to do? Well, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to show that God is more satisfying than those things that are good in and of themselves. God is more satisfying. He's, he's, he gives more joy. And, and so by responding well to the situation, you can honor and glorify God. And you can glorify God by serving your family. Or in another situation, I, I can glorify God. You can glorify God by forgiving the sin against you. And so a Christian sees conflict as an opportunity to glorify God and to serve others and to grow to be like Christ. 
Now, the second peacemaking principle is called get the log out of your own eye. Now, now turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. So first thing in conflict, we want to think, how can I glorify God? How can I, how can I honor Him? How can I serve others? How can I even see sin in my own life so that I can grow? Next thing, if you want to be a peacemaker, we need to get the log out of our own eye. Matthew chapter 7, in the context of judging others, Jesus says, or asks really this piercing question, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Why do you see the speck without noticing the log? And I guess the reason is because we judge others more harshly, harshly than we judge ourselves. Like I said, we, we tend to think that we are maybe 10% of the problem, and the other person is 90% of the problem. We, we think the other person is entirely unreasonable, and we are totally reasonable. Here's what the, the peacemaker says about this, uh, get the log out of your own eye, quote, instead of blaming others for a conflict or resisting correction... We will trust in God's mercy and take responsibility for our own contribution to conflicts, confessing our sins to those we have wronged, asking God to help us change any attitude and habits that lead to conflict, and seeking to repair any harm we have caused, end quote. Now, it's amazing how confessing our sins will help others to respond in godly ways back. You know, when, when we blame other people and we get defensive, typically they blame us right back. When we come humbly and we say, here's what God is showing me, here is my sin in this situation, here's what I've been loving above God, and, and I've asked for God's forgiveness, and now I'm coming to you and I ask, will you forgive me for my sin? If we come in that kind of a way, it's amazing how Getting the log out of our own eye helps others to see their contribution to the conflict. And now they'll turn around and say, you know what? I was sinful too. I, I did things. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have acted that way. I was loving my own comfort above you. And so usually when you come humbly and graciously and you've got the sin out of your own eye and you've seen and searched your heart about how you are adding to the conflict, usually people will respond and peacemakers call that the golden result. It's kind of like the golden rule, but it's the golden result as we come acknowledging our own sin. Once we get the log out of our own eye, then we can help others see how they have contributed to the conflict. And we can now be in a position to help them. Well, the third G, or the third peacemaking principle, is gently restore. And this comes from Galatians chapter 6. And why don't we turn... There, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. We saw this already in Matthew chapter 5.23. This is a, a, another kind of leave your gift before the altar kind of verse. Go first be reconciled to your brother. And so Galatians 6 verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... 
You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so anyone, if, if anyone is caught, if any brother is caught in any kind of trespass or any transgression, if any one of us is caught in any transgression, those of us who are spiritual, or, or we could maybe say those of us who have gotten the log out of our own eye, who have attempted to acknowledge our sin in the situation, if we're even involved in that situation, we are to restore the person in a spirit of gentleness. Now this is actually a command. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is our love for one another. This is our love for Christ and for his church. That we don't just stand idly by while part of the body of Christ suffers. If another true believer or professing believer gets caught up in sin, it's our job to restore them. It's our job to go to them. It's our job to win them back. And our aim in this is not to condemn them, not to shame them, not to embarrass them. Our aim is to restore them to true fellowship with the Lord and true fellowship with the body of Christ. Our aim is to restore them to true joy in walking with the Lord. Our aim is to restore them to honoring the Lord with their lives and representing Him well in the world. And so we don't withdraw from others and we don't attack them. We go when needed and we go and we seek to help each other live for the Lord. Now I'll talk about how to actually do this in a moment, but now I just want to see this, this principle that we abide by. We're to be like Jesus, who even though when we were His enemies, He took the initiative to reconcile us to God. God didn't wait passively by for for us to take the first steps towards him, he took the first steps and he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. Before we did anything, he sent messengers to declare terms of peace in the gospel and he sent his spirit to regenerate us. And so we want to be like Christ and we want to be the ones who go to others. We don't wait for them to come to us. We go to them and seek to restore them and, and turn them from a sin that they're caught in. Now, the, the fourth G in peacemaking is go and be reconciled. And from the Peacemaker brochure here, it says, quote, instead of accepting premature compromise or allowing relationships to wither, we will actively pursue genuine peace and reconciliation, forgiving others as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us and seeking just and mutually beneficial solutions to our differences. End quote. Now, a key verse under go and be reconciled is Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is Yours in Christ Jesus. Now we are to do nothing out of any kind of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, we're to think of others as more important, as more valuable, and we're to think about their interest even above our own interests. And so we're to go and be reconciled. We don't, pers- we don't accept some compromise or, or allow our relationships to wither, but we actively pursue peace, which again is harmony, goodwill, love in the body. 
And so the four peacemaking principles to summarize then is to glorify God, to get the log out of your own eye, to gently restore, and to go and be reconciled. Now let's talk about how you actually do this, and we'll call this peacemaking practices. Peacemaking practices. So we've seen what not to do, what to avoid. Now, how do we actually put peacemaking into practice? Now, I've already implied this, but let me say it directly. The first step is just to be a Christ-like Christian. It's really not that complicated. If we were utterly Christ-like Christians, if we were gracious and loving and forgiving and kind and patient and humble, these are the kinds of things that promote unity and peace. If we put God and others above our own wants and desires, we would be good peacemakers already. Instead of, uh, of being a peace faker or a war maker, there's this, what we have is a, a biblical progression for resolving conflict. And, and the, the way that this works, there's the two extremes, peace faker, war maker, and now there's kind of a, an escalating scale of how to deal with conflict that God gives us in His Word. And the, the first key here, is to overlook offenses. We live in a world, and maybe not so much in the Crete, but in a world where it's almost a virtue these days to be offended. You know, people today are easily offended over the least things. People are, are touchy and sensitive and uh, offended over the least thing. And when offended people... Are offended, they think now they have the right to retaliate or that, that relation, that reparation should be made to them to satisfy their feelings of offense. And, and that kind of an attitude is the opposite of godly peacemaking. The godly man or woman overlooks offenses as much as possible. Proverbs 19 and verse 11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is, it is his glory to overlook an offense. It is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. First Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And so we live in a sinful world full of sinful people, and even the godliest people are not utterly Christ-like. And people are going to sin against us maybe hundreds of times in a day. Maybe hundreds of times there's going to be little things that people do that, that annoy you, that are even sinful against you, hundreds of times a day. And, and we should overlook sin hundreds of times a day. We should let love cover it. Love can cover it. It's a, it's a form of forgiveness to overlook sin. We, we forgive the other person. If I took, if I overlook an offense, I'm, I'm choosing not to allow it to bother me. I'm choosing not to dwell on it. I'm choosing not to talk about it with others. And I'm definitely not going to allow it to grow into any kind of bitterness or anger in my heart towards that person. Now, most of the time, we should just overlook little sins. And with this, we should also try not to guess other people's motives. We don't judge the heart. That's God's work. And so if somebody gives you a funny look or says something that maybe seemed unkind or, or even was unkind or was impatient with you, 
It's best to just to try to believe the best about that person. Maybe, maybe they gave you a funny look because they can't see well. And they were trying to squint because they couldn't quite see that far. Or, or maybe they had a bad morning and they didn't get good sleep that day or good rest. Or we don't, we don't know what's going on in their heart. Don't assume that they're a jerk and they're angry with you because you don't actually know that unless you talk to them. So we want to believe the best about their intentions and we want to overlook the sin if possible. And if, now, but if you start to see a, a bit of a pattern of sin, you can, you can even just pray for that person. You know, maybe you didn't take offense at it. Re- remember in this whole thing, you're a sinner too. You sin too. You sin against other people. And so it's easy when you remember that to overlook other sins. But there comes a point where it becomes wrong to overlook. Me- remember, we, we're not to deny conflict. We're not to run from conflict. We're to run to conflict and bring reconciliation like the Lord did for us. And so when should we not overlook sin? When, when is it, when is, you know, enough enough and you got to do something about it? Well, I got four things here. One is when you can't overlook something. You know, if there's something about someone that keeps bothering you and you can't leave it alone and you can't just let it go and it's continually on your heart and maybe some, some bitterness might be growing in that thing, then you need to go and talk to that person. Secondly, when an offense has damaged the relationship and maybe there's a, a temptation now because of the damaged relationship to withdraw from that person... Uh, or, or towards anger towards that person, then now you need to go and talk to that person. Another reason when you can't overlook an offense is when the offense is hurting somebody's reputation. If a Christian is known as angry or sinful or proud or selfish, and, and that sin in their life is hurting their reputation or it's hurting Christ's reputation or the church's reputation, we can, we can no longer just ignore or overlook that sin. Or when there's an ongoing habit or pattern of sin in somebody's life, we probably shouldn't overlook it any longer. And so what do you do then? You, you know, here's what you don't do. You, you don't go and confront them guns a-blazing. Do you guys know that saying, guns a-blazing? Just like, you know, with, with all force. Um, you sinned against me. You know, you, you, we, just, we, we don't go like that. We, we go and have a discussion with them. This is, could be called number two, d- uh, discussion, or seek reconciliation. Go have a discussion with them. And when you go and have that discussion, don't accuse them of sin. You go and you ask them about it. You ask them what's going on. You, you talk to them and, and you go to them believing the best and hoping that you're wrong and hoping that what you think you've observed hasn't actually happened. Sometimes we call this exploratory surgery. Sometimes, depending on the situation, it's wise to ask a, a spiritually mature believer to help you before you go. Other times it's best just to go directly to that person. But there's this exploratory surgery. You first go and you see if there is a sin and you ask them about the things that you've observed. And if there is a sin, then Galatians 6.1 applies. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a, in a spirit of gentleness. And gentle is a really good word here. Gently talk to them. Now, 
another passage, and, and you can go ahead and, and turn here. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. We're now in this stage where it's time to have a discussion. We, we could no longer overlook this sin with the person. And so we're, we found out that there is a sin, and now we're, we're seeking to restore them. Well, Matthew 18 and verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So... If your brother repents, then you go and you have this discussion. And if your brother repents, you forgive him and and you have won your brother. Now, if not, there's some more things that we do. But before we get to those things, you know, sometimes working out a conflict needs a little bit more than just a simple discussion. And so let's say, for example, an employee of yours stole something from you. So let's say an employee stole maybe $5,000. You would want to go to that person and discuss that situation. You'd want to seek reconciliation with them. You'd want to confront them about their sin. But now what do we do? What do we do now? Well, step three is, is negotiation. And so let's say your employee stole a few thousand dollars from you over five years and you confront him and he repents. I did. I stole those things. I shouldn't have done it. It was a sin. Well, that's a wonderful thing. But now... You, you've won your brother. You have restored him back to fellowship, but now he needs to make it right, and he needs to pay you back. He should pay you back. And a truly repentant person will want to pay back what they wronged with. And so they want to pay back their debt. But, but what if he says, I can't pay you right now, because if I do, I won't be able to feed my family this month. And what if you, on the other hand, say, I really need that $5,000 like right now? Well, this is where you negotiate and you apply Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, which we already read. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so what you do is you recognize here, and I don't know if you'll you'll be able to get this, but you recognize the difference between an interest and a position. So let's just say, I want, let's say this guy says, I won't pay you this month. Well, now you're kind of at a landlock. But if you can say, well, what's your concern about paying me this month? And he says, well, I, I, I need to feed my family and, and if I pay you the $5,000, I'm going to go bankrupt. Or you could maybe say, well, uh, I want the money by the end of the week. Well, that, that's a position. There's nothing you can really do with that. But you might say, well, you know, I have some debts that need to be paid soon. And so there's this, if you hold a position that's this like rigid thing that, that's kind of unmovable, but your interest, like the, the reason behind your position there, there's usually some flexibility there. And so you try to find that, that common ground. And now maybe you can say, well, okay, you need to feed your family. I need some debts that I got to pay really soon. Let's see if we can work out a way together that, that can be mutually satisfactory. And so you see the difference there, hopefully. And, and so sometimes in a conflict, a gracious negotiation is needed. And remember, too, in, in this whole thing that 
that conflicts have a huge cost. There's going to be a time cost, an energy cost, a stress cost, a pressure cost. There's going to be a cost on your reputation. And so sometimes it's better, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6-7, just to be wronged and defrauded. And so in that context where the Corinthians were suing one another, Paul says to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? And so sometimes it's best just to count the cost and just walk away from the conflict and, uh, and give that up. But if discussion or reconciliation doesn't work and negotiation sometimes even itself doesn't work, then extra help is needed. And what, what we need to do then is bring in what I'm calling here just church assistance. And if we continue in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, you know, if, you're, if your brother sins against you, verse 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so step two, this is what we call step two of church discipline, bringing a few other impartial brothers or sisters along. It could be a pastor, could be an elder, doesn't need to be. And they come and they explore the situation and they see if a sin has happened. They see if the person has repented and if the even maybe if the person confronting the person who supposedly sinned has sinned or or confessed their sin and so so they go and they explore the situation with a couple of other people and they come to establish the facts they come to establish if a sin did occur or is occurring and if the person repents then the matter is done. If the person repents, the, the matter is, is instantly done and, and we welcome this person back with open arms. We have now won our brother. Now sometimes in a situation like this, there's a, a group negotiation would take place and uh, the, the group would figure out and, and come up with ideas of how to best make a, a plan that works for everybody in this conflict. Now step three of church discipline happens when the person refuses to repent. And so step one, go and talk to your brother. If he repents, it's over. If he doesn't, you bring two or three more people along with you. And if he repents, it's over and wonderful. You've won your brother. But if he won't listen to those two or three, then step three of church discipline happens. And in verse 17 there, if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. Now, again, I just want to remind us here that the, the whole context of this is peacemaking. We're not talking about stirring up conflict or, or division. We're, we're talking about peacemaking. And, and our goal in a thing like this is always restoration. And we, we do this because we love one another and we want to help one another not be caught in sin. And so we, we now go to step three where we tell it to the church. Now, 99% of the time, a discussion with somebody is enough. You go to somebody and you say, brother, here is this sin that you've been committing. And they're going to go, wow, I didn't even see it. Oh, God, forgive me. Will you forgive me? And, and it's going to be done. 99% of the time, it doesn't come to this. But <clears throat> 
Step three, we, we tell it to the church, and now the whole church comes with this gracious, loving attitude, and they plead with this person to turn from their sin. And after enough time goes by, and, and if the person still won't repent, then the last half of verse 17, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so if the person refuses to act like a believer, we treat them like an unbeliever. And it doesn't mean here to be mean to them. That's not the point. We, we treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. The idea is you treat them like an unbeliever because they're acting like an unbeliever because they were refusing to turn from their sin. And so our goal in this whole thing is always to restore and, and we, we go to them and, and we wait for them and we're, we're ready to forgive at any moment if they will just show the least bit of repentance and we're, we're there to help them to, to learn how to turn from that sin and to walk through them or with them through this whole thing. And, and through it all, our aim is to be gracious and compassionate and, and we recognize that we still sin and that we battle sin and we, we aim to be utterly Christ-like in this whole process because we know that the Lord values our peace. But for the purity of the church and for the reputation of Christ and for the good of their own souls, we, we need to follow the Lord's commandment here if we're going to be peacemakers. And so I hope that, that some of these things, at least to give you uh, a sense of how to deal with conflict biblically, I hope it kind of gives you at least a, a starting point or at least maybe shows you enough that, that, you know, I'm a person that you could come to and, and talk about conflict with. I'm, I'm here for you in any kind of conflict that you have to try to help you work through whatever you're going through. But let's close by meditating on Jesus Christ, he, again, is the great peacemaker. Colossians 1.21 says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so we remember now, even as we're thinking of coming towards the Lord's Supper, we remember that we were hostile, that we were alienated from God in our mind, that we were doing evil deeds, that we were sinners, that we were separated from God, and we remember what Jesus Christ did to reconcile us to God, that he came and lived a perfect life as our representative, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and that through him we are presented now to God as holy and blameless and above reproach. That really is amazing to think that we were sinners, alienated, hostile, but now because of what Jesus Christ did as our representative, we are viewed by God as holy and blameless and above reproach. And that's how we will stand before him for all eternity. Our role then is to continue to believe in verse 23. If you continue indeed, if you continue in the faith, steadfast and stable, not shifting from the hope 
that you have heard. And so we continue to trust in Jesus Christ. And true believers will continue to trust in Jesus Christ to the end. Because our faith is not a a one-time decision. It's not merely a one-time thing, but it's a lifelong trust and union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's through that union that God now views us as holy before him. And with that holiness and with that transformation of life, now we go to the world and we act as peacemakers, both to bring them to salvation and with one another, that we would have peace and harmony with one another. And this gospel and this unity that we have in Christ is what we remember as we participate in the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, we're going to sing. And so come on up, Rob and and Kevin. We're going to sing to God be the glory, great things he has done. Let's just pray. Father, we pray that you would be glorified. We thank you for the great things that you have done, that you loved the world such that you gave us your son. We pray that you would help us to sing it to your glory. We pray that you would help us to participate in the Lord's Supper in a way that honors you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.